Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation, a pre-seed venture capital firm based in Brooklyn, New York. We invest in product-focused teams on day zero. If you're starting a new company or want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital or email us at hello at notation.vc. If you want to work at a Notation portfolio company, check out jobs.notation.vc. This episode is sponsored by Silicon Valley Bank and Cooley LLP. Silicon Valley Bank is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors with a dedicated practice for emerging managers. They've been friends and partners to Notation since the beginning. To learn more about SVB's services, visit svb.com. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high-growth industries. It's the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. We've worked with Cooley since the beginning of Notation. They've helped us form all three Notation funds. We recommend them to all the startups we work with and many of our VC peers as well. Learn more about the firm and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors at CooleyGo.com. Today, my guests are Sahil Lavingia and Steve Schlafman. Sahil was the second engineer at Pinterest, is the founder and CEO of Gumroad, and the manager of one of the top rolling funds on AngelList. Steve has also spent his career both as an operator and investor. He was most recently a VC at more traditional firms like RRE and Lara Hippo, but recently went out on his own as a founder coach through his work at High Output and as an angel using a more traditional fund structure on AngelList. I'm incredibly excited to have them both here with us today. Thank you guys both. Uh, for doing this. I, I really do appreciate it. I'm really excited to have this conversation. I think a great place to start and kick things off is Steve and Sahil in uh, no particular order. Could you just tell us a little bit about yourselves and your backgrounds and what brings you to today? Sure, I'll, I'll jump in. So I, I, I'm having a little bit of an identity crisis because I, I, I wear a number of hats um, I like to, to say that I'm a recovering VC. I spent almost the last decade as a VC at some of the top VC firms in New York, like Lair Hippo. Um, about three years ago, I actually decided to become a coach uh, where I work predominantly with founders. And last fall, I decided to effectively do that full time. Uh, but I, I really love the idea of supporting founders with a checkbook. And so uh, in Q1 of 2020, right before COVID hit, I closed a, a very small fund predominantly from friends and friends of friends um, to invest uh, at the earliest stages of a, of a company's life cycle. And so I, 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 I like to say that I, I have like one toe in venture, but I spend you know 70% of my day coaching through a company that I created called Hide Output. And I'm now working on what I'm calling the Founder Library, which is kind of a, a community resource and site for founders. And so between those two things, it, it's taking up most of my time. So anyhow, I'll, I'll, I'll stop now, but that's, that's who I am and what I'm up to. Awesome. Um, I'm Sahil. Uh, so primarily, I also am having an identity crisis. Uh, I feel like uh, 2020 might have triggered quite a few of those. Yeah. 
Yeah. For the better, I hopefully. Uh, you guys are you guys are inspiring my future identity crisis. <laughs> I'm ready for it. <laughs> uh, but I I started a company in 2011 called Gumroad, sort of in the passion economy, and uh, we help content creators sell 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 their products directly to their audiences, and sort of did the whole venture back thing. Uh, didn't work as well as expected, but you know now it's kind of a nice business. 10 million in ARR, doubling every year. COVID certainly helped with that. And then recently, I launched a, a little a venture fund, a rolling fund, which has kind of become almost like a meme now in the community. That basically, yeah, it kind of similar to Steve, like invest super early into uh, as early as I can uh, into yeah startups that I'm sort of in spaces that I'm interested in, which are primarily like B2B SaaS, e-commerce, future work, creator economy, uh, e-commerce. I don't know if I've said those marketplaces, stuff that you know, stuff that I already spent my time thinking about via Gumroad, anyways. And so I, yeah, so it's. Right now, it's honestly, frankly, like the majority of what I do is the fund. And like, luckily, government's nine years old, profitable, good team in place. You know, they're kind of excited to run the ship for a while. Uh, but I, that's sort of the identity crisis I'm referring to is like, how, how do I manage both these responsibilities? Uh, so yeah, that's kind, of, that's kind of me in a nutshell. Cool. Thank you, guys. So I think what's interesting and, and, and in fact, inspiring is like the large majority of the guests we've had on Origins over the years are, you know, fully dedicated to like institutional venture capital funds, either on like the LP or the VC side. And, and you know, traditionally, like within venture, the meme, so to speak, is like, you not just have to be all in, but like you have to be committed to like many funds in the future. Ten years. 10, 10 to 15 years. Right. And then you layer on multiple funds. And so it's, you know, it's a, you get, you get, you get to 20 years pretty quickly. Correct. And so what I think is so interesting about what you guys are doing is like, you've found a way to like work on multiple things. Some of those things on the operating side, some of those things on the investing side, which I think, I think is more and more attractive to more and more people. So I'm, I'm curious you know, how you think about managing your time, how you think about just this trend, like, are, is there going to be more of this and why, and, and why do you think this is kind of maybe like starting to hit a little bit of escape velocity around like just the broader acceptance from the community that, you know, you can kind of do both and do both well. And so I'm curious how you kind of like manage your various responsibilities and how to how you think about like the broader trend around that too which i think many people are starting to call like solo capitalists i'm not really sure like exactly what that means but like i'd be curious to hear what that means to you guys uh yeah I'll, i can go first i mean yeah it seems yeah solo gp solo capitalist i think sort of just refers to the idea that you have effectively one person who's able to deploy way more capital than normally one person is able to deploy, uh, you know, uh, right. and, and this is not new, you know, like I would say sort of like Raymond Tonsing with caffeinated capital and, you know, I'm sure other folks before have, have sort of had a similar model. Um, Steve Anderson think, at baseline. Yeah. Steve Anderson at baseline and, uh, Michael Deering, Harrison yep. metal. And, I mean, even Chris Aka is probably maybe the most famous. Yeah. One. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. 
and frankly, probably the most successful at multiple wise. But I think, uh, I think what's new and different is the fact that it's, it seems much more open. It, it seems like you, like people are much more comfortable talking about what they're doing. I think previously, if you're a founder with a fund on the side or you're scouting for Sequoia or what have you, you're not really, it wasn't really socially acceptable to say, and, you know, mm. kind of like you're saying, like for VCs, it wasn't really, you know, right. kind of committed for this long period. Founders too, right? Like founders taking secondaries was kind of a faux pas, uh, you know, angel investing on the side even was a, like, when I started government, 2012, I paused all of my angel investing. I didn't do a single deal from 2012 to 2016, which was like financially the stupidest thing I've ever done. <laughs> it was not. Uh, and I think people have, I don't know if it's, it's founders just can. And frankly, like, they just have sort of more power in this relationship, you know, it's sort of the supply demand curve right now uh, that, that people just have to listen to them. But I, I think all, and that's probably certainly a part of it. I think the other part of it is that it's people are realizing potentially that like investing is maybe not like a time-based game, right? Like it's uh, something that it's, is you can kind of do almost like, you know, like people like to use a metaphor of of an athlete or something like that, where you're, you're making decisions. Uh, frankly, I think CEOs should should be viewed similarly. And I actually think Elon Musk and Jack Dorsey have kind of also <laughs> made it more socially acceptable to do this. Because uh, certainly Jack is like maximum could spend 50% of his time on any one yeah. company. Right. And these are two like publicly traded multi-billion dollar companies. I, so I, I think people are realizing that you you are trying to get to a position where you're able to like use your judgment. That's sort of your value is in the judgment. Your value might be in recruiting and brand these really high leverage activities, typically recruiting might be the lowest leverage activity of those. And if that's true, then like, why not? Right. Like, why can't I write a $15,000 check into a friend and like, you know, once a quarter, I'm, I'm having dinner with them, like, you know, once every few weeks anyways, like having some sort of like skin in the game, um, I think is, is totally fine. Uh, and I think the market has just sort of realized like that's maybe not as detrimental uh, to the founders mm-hmm. and, and the sort of founder journey in the startup as, as previously thought. So I think it's just, it's just more acceptable, you know? Mm. Yeah. And, and I, I, I also see sort of two like waves or like historical arcs that have made this possible. I think if you look at venture capital in the eighties, nineties and call it the first half of the, the, the early two thousands, you typically had, a type of investor that was not a founder or an operator. Typically they had more of a finance background or they were, they were sort of raised in, in the venture capital business, but, you know, call it post 2005, you started to have more of these operators come in as angels, as VCs. And as that becomes almost like this, like I, I find that now firms are, are hiring that profile to begin with. It's almost like cracking that open that now anybody can be an investor mm. and founders, I, I believe have a preference to partner with those that have actually been on, on the ground and gone their hands dirty. So I think that is absolutely been a sort of a major trend that has, is enabled this. And then of course, like it's, it's impossible not to mention AngelList and what, you know, that is unlocking, you know, I, I personally raised a traditional fund on top of AngelList. So it's a $5 million pool of capital. I think if the rolling funds had been available 
in December, I, I probably would have taken advantage of that structure for a variety of reasons. But I think with rolling funds, you know, part of the reason why I think it's a great thing for the industry is because it's just going to, you know, raising a fund, as you know, Nick, you've been through the institutional fundraise three times. It's, you know, it's a heavy lift, whereas the rolling funds are just going to make it way more easy to get started. And to me, I think that that's going to be a great thing because the diversity of new fund managers is going to explode. I think those two factors have really contributed to allowing guys like Sah- Sahil and myself to do this. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to get to the kind of nuance of the rolling fund versus the regular funds in, in, in a little bit and talk to you guys about that. And um, I've said this before a number of times, I think if Angelus regular funds had existed when we were starting notation, there's no doubt in my mind, that's that's probably what we what we would have done with our with at least with our first fund. I'm curious how you guys think about like operating as individuals, as like solo people. Cause again, the traditional kind of venture meme is like you should be part of a team. There's like you want to get around the table and kind of challenge each person's ideas and assumptions and thinking and and so I'm curious. I'm actually mostly just curious like day to day, you know, how you guys think about investing as, as individuals and if maybe you find ways to kind of bounce ideas off other people in like a less formal way. And also just like Steve, I know you've operated in teams before within venture capital firms, like how, how you think about kind of some of the differences there today. As you said, I, I worked for three funds over a decade and you know, I think I ultimately decided to go out on my own for, for a bunch of reasons. One of which was I was at three funds. I was had made partner or was a partner at, at pretty much all of them. And for some reason, it I just never felt at home. Like I always kind of felt like a fish out of water in the institutional structure. And I think that was a bit that was a big reason. I, I had said that to, to Satya Patel. Um, last fall when I was really thinking about going and doing coaching full-time and raising a small fund. Um, And I just said to him, like, I just feel like a fish out of water in most institutional funds. And so I think that was the thing that really led me. Then the other was just, I think part of it was just circumstances and timing where I was like, I don't want to, I just want to get back to work and I don't want to go and find a partner because that's going to take 18 to 24 months. It, it's obviously a long and complicated process. And then once I find someone that I love, because it wasn't apparent, all my all the people that I wanted to partner with were, were tied up. So it was just like, I'm just going to get started. I'm just going to get out on my own. And frankly, the third is I just, it's, I'm, I'm ready to bet on myself. And, you know, I think like talking about this idea of like the individual as a brand, like, I think that this is going to become a bigger trend, and Sahil can certainly talk about this more than I can. But you know, I, I've been on Twitter now almost 15 years, and you know, I've I've built a brand that I think stands for something. And um, I think no longer do you need to be part of an institution for that brand to rep- to to resonate with founders, right? Or that value prop. Like I think that. You know, being the solo fund managers, um, I forget what what Nikhil titled it as as you said earlier, 
is I, I just, I, I believe that what you're going to have is you're going to have more specialization. And if you're a founder, you're going to have more option and choice, particularly in the early stage, you might partner with an institution like Notation, but then you can partner with five or six or seven of these angel solo managers that have very specific expertise or, or uh, whether it's a functional expertise or sector specific. So, Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because that journey reminds me of starting Gumroad, where I was like, I need to get started. I'm super excited mm-hmm. about this idea maybe I'll do YC, maybe I'll find a co-founder, but I'm not going to wait, you know, months right. for, for these things to line up and these people to line up. And so I just got started and then enough time had passed that I got far enough. Like I don't really, you know, need, maybe I don't need a co-founder, uh, which is kind of the meme on the, on the kind of the operator side. Right. And similar with, yeah, similar with the fund, I think you can always go from one to two. Right. And I think going from two to one is, is a little yeah. sometimes. Yeah. I'm not opposed to partnerships. And I think sometimes maybe in the pithiness of Twitter, it might get lost, but I actually think like partnerships are potentially, I mean, like I would argue, I would say return profiles probably better on the whole, if you, on aggregate, if you look at partnerships for a solo, just because, you know, you have Sequoia and first round and Tation and Andreessen. And like, it's, it is helpful to have sort of people gut checking you, right? Like when you're mm-hmm. able to move so fast, you can make mistakes, right? You can get excited, not do enough diligence, miss something, not have awareness about a potential market issue or, or what have you. Um, so, so I think, I, I, but, but I think the, this, this kind of solo approach to that is going to be, is going to happen. It's just going to be kind of like bottoms up. Uh, and I've only invested sort of professionally, quote unquote, in this sort of COVID era. But so, so I don't know what it was like before, but I think because of things like WhatsApp and Twitter DMs, and Clubhouse even, and Zoom, like it's just, it's it's so easy uh, to just ask people that you respect for their opinions and they don't need to be partners, right? In your fund. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them happen to be limited partners in my fund. Uh, and I certainly ask them for, for help. The, like the great thing about Twitter is like, there's hundreds, if not thousands of people that frankly might be better qualified to, to like vet an opportunity than you know, the three or four people who are in my partnership, right? The big forcing function here, I think, is just speed. And again, I think this has sort of been accelerated via COVID. But I think as I talk to founders, the most impressive thing about me to a founder that I found is how fast I can move and how responsive I am, which honestly, like I was like, I had a long list of things that I was like, I can help you with product and strategy and marketing and storytelling. And I have a big Twitter account if you need that. Or like, I have all these things I have built company and I don't know, like stuff. Uh, and then, but over and over again, people are like, you know, honestly, like if you can get us the money, like in the, you know, if you can wire in 24 hours, like mm. we'll, we'll get you in now. And then, yeah. you know, because, because people are kind of moved to these rolling safes anyways, it, it, it matters even more. Right. Whereas before, like you'd kind of allocate at the end of a round, you talk to like a bunch of people and then you kind of figure it out, which still happens, obviously price rounds, et cetera. But at pre-seed, it's just like 100K, 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 250K. Hey, we're done. We're done. Yeah. I think you bring up a really, a really interesting point where, you know, I think at the end of the day, founders, what, what really matter, what really matters is, yeah, the support and all that does. Like you need to be able to sell yourself in a way that they feel like they're going to get some value from you being on the cap table. Now that said... I think the two things that matter even more so is speed and conviction. 
and belief. And this idea of like, I just believe in you. I see your, the future that you're laying out and I want to be a part of it. And to me, I think that's definitely one of the advantages that the solo funds have is that ability to move really fast and get conviction. And I don't need to get permission from anyone else. And so I, I definitely think that, you know, to, to piggyback on what Sahil said, I definitely agree with him. And then I would say the, the other thing is in terms of how I find collaborators is I've been in this business, you know, I have dozens of, you know, if not more of investor relationships, certainly founder relationships. And like Sahil, like, you know, Twitter DMs, email, text, uh, WhatsApp, you know, for me, I'm, I'm always collaborating. Like my wife actually saw that I had like something like a hundred unread text messages. And she's like, what, what's even going on? And it's <laughs> like, you know, there's, there's always a thread going on. So for me, I, I, if I, I, I can't, I can't see myself if, if I work in a vacuum, I'm not going to be effective. Mm. You know, to me, to me, I think the spirit and you and I have talked about this, Nick, as it relates to this, uh, to me going out on my own, I actually think of our conversation that we had in Madison Square Park. But when I was at primary, it's over a hundred million dollar fund. Primary predominantly writes million to two million dollar lead checks at the seed stage. And I couldn't collaborate with all my friends in the business because you know, you and I were competing against each other in some cases, right? Yeah. And so this actually allows me to be way more collaborative. And I just, for me at this stage of my career, it's like, this is just the, the role I want to play. And so you and I can, can, can talk about a bunch of, you know, we, we actually exchanged an email on something earlier and that's the role. Like I would much rather collaborate with you, Sahil, Brianne, you know, whoever, because it's just, I, I enjoy it. it. It's just more aligned with my core values. So, so let, let's talk about angelless funds. And, and ultimately what they mean. I'd appreciate it if you guys could just talk a little bit about just each of the structure that you guys chose, because there's now, um, my understanding, like multiple different types of structures for funds on AngelList. And because I imagine many folks are still like not totally familiar with what that means. So um, if you could just give like a quick overview of the type of structure that you used and also maybe some of the pros and cons around it. Maybe Sahil, you go first. Okay. Yeah. So, so I have a rolling fund, uh, which Angelus launched, I think, officially in February of 2020. So it's, it's pretty new. Um, the SEC kind of only approved it last year, uh, though it does use some sort of new regulations from the 2012-2013 Jobs Act, uh, 506C specifically, for public, public markability of funds. Yeah. 506C, is it? Yeah, 506C. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and so there's, there's two things that are kind of interesting about rolling funds. Uh, one is that effectively in, you have a management company that spins up SPVs every quarter and then LPs are quarterly subscribed to the, to the fund. So it's kind of a legal agreement they have with the management company every quarter. You know, let's say you have 10 LPs for 100K each and SPV gets spun up. Everyone sort of employs money into that, to that fund. Uh, and then you deploy that fund uh, over that quarter. If you don't deploy all the capital, it just rolls over to the next into the next quarter. So effectively it's, it's like turning, you know, a one-off hundred thousand dollar LP sort of, you know, commit into, you know, $10,000 a quarter or something like that. Mm -hmm. 
that's sort of the simple, the simple thing. And then uh, sort of independent of rolling funds, but it's kind of just become part of the, is, is the 506C marketability. So you can do this with a traditional fund and you, you can have a rolling fund like Naval has without public marketability if you want to. But, you know, I think it, because of the rolling nature of it, the fact that you can always be raising money for it, like if someone listens to this and is like, I really want to put money in solid fund, right. you can DM me on Twitter and yep. you can be an LP starting October 1. And I think that's incredibly compelling already, but, but like, not if you can't tell anyone about it, <laughs> right? Yeah. It is compelling for Naval. You, you're super well connected. I'm sure people are inbounding him all the time about this kind of stuff. For someone like me, who's mostly sort of like screaming into the Twitter sphere, it's nice to be able to kind of remind people that I have this publicly. So that, so those are the two things, this sort of what the, the kind of one-off to, to recurring sort of sassification of, of funds, if you, if you, you might call it that. And then the, the sort of public markability of it. Yeah. That is technically available to traditional funds too, if they wish to pursue the more the sort of traditional fund structure, but embrace yeah. that it will help you do that too. I believe one, one just uh, technical question. Are you, so, you know, LPs invest on a quarterly basis. Are you taking carry like for each quarterly committed amount or is it like rolling up in some way where you're taking carry on like all the investments over the course of a number of years, like a traditional fund would? I wish. <laughs> uh, no, I, so, so, so it's basically everyone commits for a minimum subscription period. So in my fund, the minimum is one year, uh, though I kind of encourage everyone to think longer term than that. And then Angelus does the math to make sure that there's sort of like a, a, a hurdle that includes all of the quarters that they, that they were sort okay. of that they were subscribed for initially. So basically, you know, I'd, if you're subscribed for two years, you know, even if you have like a, a hit in your first quarter, I'd have to pay back everything first uh, before. So it's, it's just it. trying to mimic, I guess, traditional fund economics there. Yeah. With a more flexible, basically like entry point, like almost like a hedge fund, like you would commit yeah. and then pull out on yeah, a, exactly. on a regular basis. Exactly. Very similar to a hedge fund. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Steve, how about you? Because I know you did like a more traditional fund and I'm curious how you think about the pros and cons and if maybe you'd move to a rolling fund over time. Yeah, it's funny because I I, I engaged AngelList for this fund, I want to say in November of 19, early November of 19. And I had been talking with Ryan Hoover uh, for, of Product Hunt maybe in the summer when he you know sort of gave me the, the, the details of how he launched Weekend Fund. And, you know, I'd say, if I think about it, it was a very easy process to get started. Um, so I think the pros was just very easy to get started. I think for me, I didn't want to go and raise 10, 15, 20, although I, I definitely could have. Again, mine was all about speed to market. I want to be deploying checks as quickly as I possibly can, like within under a month was, was my goal. And so that's why I chose a relatively small amount of capital. I think five five is what I ended up at. So, so the, the pros was just fund in a box, get started. I did not know that rolling funds, you know, rolling funds had actually been launched in February, as Sahil said. And so I was our, I had already chosen the structure, but this is a more traditional venture structure, 10-year life. There's a committed pool of capital multiple capital calls. So again, like I think the idea is that it is a traditional fund structure with the idea that it's like turnkey, 
All the back office is handled by AngelList. I don't have to go and hire a separate fund administrator. I just pay them a management fee. I have a back office contact at AngelList who's phenomenal. I fill out a very simple form when I want to submit an investment. Um, They approve it. I introduce the founder to them and it's taken care of. And then all of my activity and, and portfolio updates are all tracked on the AngelList platform. And so for me, it was just the speed, the ease, and just like removing all the administrative headache of getting started. And so, you know, I would say that the the cons are, you know, I don't necessarily see them as cons. Maybe when you're comparing it to the rolling fund is that idea of it being a closed fund. So I'd say that was one of them. The other is that I didn't market the fund pub- publicly. Like if I had marketed the fund publicly, like, you know, it took me two months to get the fundraise. It probably would have taken me two, two to three weeks my, is my guess, maybe a month at, at the most. And so I do think the ability to market the fund is a such a significant advantage. And then I would say the other is, you know, I think I really like about rolling funds and as I've thought about this is it allows you to build a relationship over time. So for example, I could meet a family office and I didn't take any family office money, but I could have met a family office and when I kicked off a roll, like hypothetically, if I was going to do a rolling fund and they say, Hey, you know, we really like you. Let's track it next quarter. I could go to them and they say, great, right. You know, let's commit. I'm making it up You know, our normal commitments, uh, at least a million, but let's put in 200 or 250 and then they see your progress and then they can put in more. And so it allows you to grow your, your, your asset base as you demonstrate that you can get access to amazing companies. Whereas with me, again, my funds closed, it's fixed. And so I'll deploy this over, my guess is over a two year period, it'll be somewhere between 40 and 50 companies. And then, you know, I'll have a a decision to make, do I want to go and raise more capital? And then at that point, you know, it probably makes sense to just do a rolling fund. So what does this all mean for early stage venture? You know, you do you do see like the memes, which is like this is gonna change everything. It's gonna totally disrupt how early stage venture works, and maybe there there's some there's some truth to that. And so I'm curious what you guys think some of this stuff means, particularly because it sounds like some of these new things have have like actually just fundamentally enabled you to do this stuff in a new way, and in theory, you kind of like draw it out longer term. And it it does seem that it might have a dramatic impact on how funds are started and how folks allocate capital and how founders raise capital. So I'm curious to hear how you each think about what kind of the short term and long term consequences of this stuff might be. I mean, I think short term, the shortest term stuff is the fact that not only can I talk about the fund in terms of collecting capital for it, but I can act, I'm sort of financially incentivized to educate people about the model. So I think that's kind of new. It's like I have every time I go on Twitter and I talk about the fund, I'm effectively marketing the fund at the same time to not only to LPs, but to founders, right? And like, and you're marketing the structure. And, yeah, totally. So, so I think, you know, obviously it's a meme because it's the only kind of fund you can even talk about. <laughs> right. You can't like fundraise for anything else publicly, right? So I think that's part of it. It's just like you haven't been able to really talk about this kind of stuff publicly. You'd have to have like 
you know, a private Zoom webinar, you know, have some sort of checkbox if you're accredited or not or whatever, right? Obviously, SEC, whatever, like we, you know, they don't really tackle this stuff, but you know, you want to be, you want to sort of play by the rules. Typically, that's kind of important. Uh, I would say that, so. That's sort of step one. I think is just like informing everybody. I think people are getting way more educated about and, and just generally about VC now because of this kind of stuff. Yeah. I think is really helpful for that. I think the next thing is going to just be more founders and operators, people who are part time VCs are going to enter this space. I don't think this is going to happen. Like thousands. I don't think there are thousands of people uh, that could sort of do that, but I think there are probably dozens, if not a couple hundred people, you know, all having like one, two, three million dollar a year funds. I mean, and and, in early stage is small, right? I think venture as a whole is like 50, 100 billion dollars a year. I assume pre-seed is a few billion, 10 billion, you know, it's small. And frankly, like so much about, and what, what so much about pre-seed is who you know and who knows you. It's about like, it's about your credibility, pre-product, pre-traction. And, you know, and this is why I think diversity and all these is such a big issue is because you're betting on, it's very difficult to bet on people you haven't worked with before in some capacity or you aren't, you know, because it, you get zeros, right? You, people can take your money and disappear with it forever. Uh, this is like equity investing. That's sort of the big yeah. downside. You can get zeros yeah. out of it. You can't loan shark the money back. And so I think if you get more people into the system, you're going to get their networks able to raise money, right? And so if you, if you have like all of my sort of every Gumroad, former Gumroad employee, I know if I should give them money or not. I don't even have to meet with them. I can just say, yes, you deserve, you know, you're, you, you meet this bar, you don't meet this bar, here's how you get to this bar, et cetera. Uh, so I think it's going to sort of have that sort of second order effect of bringing a lot more founders into the, into the game at a pre-seed mm-hmm. level. I don't think it's going to take too many people uh, to sort of make a significant shift um, and I think that sort of applies geographically as well. You need, you know, you get one rolling fund manager in like Atlanta or two or three or four, you know, Chicago, Seattle, like obviously they're venture capitalists, but often they're like sort of the series A or they're thinking about it, you know, but like mo- most people can't even get there. And in some of those other geographies, you, you know, I think the South is, a, is an interesting one where you don't necessarily have the, the same style of investor as you would in say like in LA, New York or Silicon Valley that, you know, are largely making investments based on people as opposed to like business model and traction and all these other things. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, I, I do think sometimes maybe the impact in the short term is oversold. Like it's going to change. It's like, look, founders don't really care that much, <laughs> yeah. right? Like they want to work with great, great investors who are responsive, fast, get out of the way, help when they need help, respond to the emails, et cetera. Uh, most founders uh, sort of just want, you know, they don't, they're not going to care about this sort of the, the sort of the fundamentals of the, of the legal structure, et cetera. But I do think it's going to enable all of these new interesting people to become investors. And those people are going to be really compelling to founders. And I think long-term, like 10, 15, 20 years from now, I, like one, I think public marketability is going to be everywhere. Like, I just think that's a default. Rolling funds are not that's like, it, it makes very little sense to me why you would not want to tell people that you have a fund yeah. and, and yeah. capital. Um, so I think that's going to, that's going to happen. And then, you know, the, I would say the last thing is angelist and rolling funds is like a single, you know, implementation of this idea. Right. And so I think there will be more implementations of this idea. I don't know mm-hmm. if this is the best one. They're like Carta will have their own approach. Right. Right. They have a little bit of a head start. But I think this will, if it's interesting, frankly, like they don't deserve a monopoly, right? And and everyone everyone should be able to do this. Um, and so I think you know it'll it'll just, it'll just become a thing. Like people won't even think about it anymore. Just like safes are just the norm now, right? Yeah. But yep. in the beginning, safes like investors are like safes are weird, and you can like 
you know, this person can get a cap like two weeks before this person. Now it feels, now feels like default. Now you have to. I mean, yeah. yeah. Like if you see, yeah. if you say, hey, we're doing a price round, I'm like, what? Like that exists. <laughs> yeah. I still love them. Like price rounds are great. No problem at all. But founders are not going to pick those. Uh, you know, uh, they don't, they don't make a lot of sense at that stage. So I think you'll see a similar thing sort of on the investor side. Yeah. And I, I agree with a lot of what Sahil said. And I'll, I'll just, I'll add, I'll add one thing, which is um, the, the interesting thing that I see both in terms of even the traditional fund structure, but certainly with the rolling funds is again, this idea of creating access and in giving people the ability to uh, have a checkbook without necessarily going through the whole institutional rigmarole. Yeah. And the, and the institutional hiring process. Exactly. You know, you go to old Sand Hill firm X and you had to have a certain resume and, you know, go to Harvard Business School or whatever. Yeah. that Those days, at least at the earliest stage, like that, that's, I think that's going to shift. And to me, I don't necessarily think like the rolling funds or the, the solo managers are coming after the big institutions. You know, what I think is there's going to be a new ecosystem. I, I could imagine a world where you see like federations of these or like groups of these uh, angels that are basically collaborating and almost in some ways taking the place, like collect, like almost like pooling together yeah. their collective funds to be able to compete at the earliest stage for great companies. Now that said, like, I think that there's the Sequoias and the, 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 the bigger funds in the institutional, whether it's the in, great institutional seed fund series A, like, I don't think that model's at risk. What I do think, though, is that some of these great managers are going to emerge and they're going to become formidable competition. And what I also think is that you're going to see a lot more innovation in terms of what these managers are doing, right? Like what Sahil's doing, you know, what I'm trying to build with the founder library where we're working on projects or we're bringing a value prop that it's very, very difficult for traditional venture funds to replicate because it's not in their DNA. They're like, oh, we're going we're gonna to add this service line or we're going to add this. But like when you're an individual and this is like part of your core identity or your skill set, it's very hard to match. And so I, I just think there's going to be a lot of innovation experimentation, which, which I think is a great thing. So again, I, uh, you know, I don't think it's, it's, you know, the big funds are over. It's just some of these new managers are going to emerge with really interesting ideas. And, you know, some of those might end up becoming formidable competitions and become institutionalized at some point. Yeah. I think the idea of uh, bundling a bunch of now kind of like solo angels rolling list funds could be really interesting because. Yeah, I do, too. Think about like a traditional firm. It, it is basically a bundle of people. Yeah. It's something I've thought I've I've been thinking about. I think that will probably be a thing at some point where a group of, you know, Sahil and you, Steve, and a bunch of folks come together and say, hey, maybe we can get kind of leverage in some sort of bundle in some way. So that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. This is actually just a, a quick question, maybe maybe more relevant for Steve. Like, do you given you have some like previous institutional venture experience, like I'm curious if you see 
Or I'm curious how you think like maybe the traditional LPs play in this, if at all. And if they ever will, like at some point does, you know, Horsley Bridge, well-respected fund of funds, or maybe Sahil, they've already approached you. But like at some point, like, do they get in this game? Like, do they say, hey, you know, Sahil's doing a job. Steve's doing a great job. Let's just like back all the top, you know, rolling funds on the platform. Like, do you think that comes? And maybe why not? Why why yeah. not? Right. If you're if you're demonstrating the ability to get into some amazing companies, and then over time you're actually building a real track record. I mean, why why wouldn't they? Right. They're in the business of also delivering returns to their LPs. Um, now, I think like anything. It's going to require LPs that have a certain level of risk appetite to at least start to experiment and make a few investments in the category. But I don't see why not, uh, especially as this becomes more accepted. But it's going to take a little while. But you know, whether it's one, two, three years, like I absolutely see some of the institutions dipping their toe in the water here. How about other stages? So like we've talked a lot about, you know, pre-seed and seed. One thing that I'm seeing a little bit more of is like, you know, and there have been some examples in the last couple of years of like Notion raising a big round from individuals and founders. I think Front did it as well. They did. I'm curious how you think, like maybe Sahil, like you obviously have an amazing network of founders that you work with. You know, founder comes to you and says, hey, Saha, we've been working for a while now. Maybe you invested in the pre-seed or seed. Like, why don't you just do my A yeah. or B? I'm curious if you've thought about that before and maybe if you think that will come to fruition in the years to come. Yeah, I've, I've definitely thought about it. Um, or maybe as also a former founder, if that's something that you would have considered. Yeah. Or sorry, a current founder is someone that you, yeah. you, know, that you consider. Yeah. I mean, I, so I, it's, it's, I'm a very like traditional, like I think traditional funds have a, a so much to, to, to add. Uh, and, and I think, especially if you plan at some point to IPO your company, you, you're going to need someone who's done that before. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is the thing, right? It, it, it kind of comes back to, you just need someone who's done it before. So if, if you're starting a company, you probably want people early that have started a company before. If you plan an IPO, you probably want people who've IPO'd a company before. Right. And so I think, I think it really just depends on what the founder wants. I think uh, I can't speak to front uh, notion. I have a little bit more familiarity with, I think they had tremendous product market fit. They probably just needed to sort of manage their cash flow a little bit differently. They were able to take super low dilution. They kind of knew where they were going. They were still sort of early, right. Tiny team uh, at that, for that sort of revaluation and, and probably like the traction that they had. And so I think they were like, look, like we just, we don't want to raise money officially. Like we don't want to do the thing, right? We don't want to go out and meet a bunch mm-hmm. of people and just a pre-COVID, right? To like meet a bunch of people and, you know, have conversations and sort of like try to do an auction and this and that. It's like, look, this is the price. Are you in or not? You know, can you raise, can you give us the money? And like kind of going back to the, the conviction. And so it, it really was, was like a pre-seed or seed round, just mm-hmm. like at scale almost. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think like, yeah, series, series A, B, I do think eventually at some point it makes sense to bring on, on the sort of the, the, the firms of the world who are really good at company building and helping you build an executive team 
And, you know, they, they, they invest a lot of money in, in, in their teams to go out and do that. And I think there is a lot of value there. I just think, I think the sort of people like me, yeah, maybe series A becomes like, maybe series B becomes known as series board seat or something. Right. And A's are actually <laughs> right. kind of like a new kind of like, well, kind of like what happened, you know, seeds used to be like a million bucks. Now there's pre-seed because seeds have become this like sort of three to 4 million kind of area. Right. Um, and I think, I think you'll, you might see a world in which kind of like, you know, Gumroad, maybe we shouldn't have raised the A with the board seat. We should have raised sort of like three to 4 million bucks and figured it out a little bit more. And it kind of becomes this more uh, the gradiented approach, right? Similar to rolling funds, right? Like it kind of grows over time instead of like doing these big, like 1 million, 5 million, 30 million, 150 million IPO, right? Multi-billion dollar IPO. Yeah. So that's kind of how I see it. And and personally, um, people have asked already like, Hey, you know, you invested in the pre-seed or the seed, you know, would you consider doing a much larger check or a series A check or something? And I'm just like, look, like the, the most important thing for me right now, I think, is to build my track record and do a lot of interesting uh, deals and help the founders and like really like build that. And it's going to take a couple of years, I think, to your point about institutional LPs. I totally think they'll be on board, but they're going to look for the same things they look for from everybody else. It's hard to raise money from Horsley Bridge, regardless of fund structure. And so I think like they're going to ask, I haven't talked to them, uh, but but like I've talked to some others and I think they'll, you know, just casually and they'll ask for like track record and things like that. And so I think it's a different commitment level, right? Uh, and so I want to make sure I'm ready for that. And then, yeah, kind of on the Series A, what I what I tell founders is like, I actually, for me personally, I would prefer if you raised from a top tier Series A firm, frankly, because what I need as an investor is is to prove that I'm not the only person betting on this over and over again. Mm. And as a founder, you're actually, you might want sort of, if you're front, you don't need it. If you're Notion, you don't need that credibility. Yeah, uh, Everyone knows you're, you're probably going to do all right. But if you're still kind of a first-time founder, still trying to figure it out, yeah, sure, you have some interest from VCs. Like, I don't know, it does. The brand, I think, does really does really matter um, for recruiting, for hiring. If you're building enterprise software, like those things really do matter. And so, and then personally, I just say, look, like I'd almost rather have like I, there there are companies I meet that I'm like, look, I have a big enough Twitter audience, like I can raise an SPV and do your whole round. And frankly, that would be better financially for me. But I want to show that I can be the first check into a company and then help you close. A, a seed round from from really really great investors like Notation, et cetera, right? And so that's kind of how I see it. That might change over time, two three years in, when I have the sort of people respect me as an investor and I have more of that uh, cloud. I can kind of say, okay, I'm now doing maybe what Lockie does or what Naval does, and kind of just you know Elad and, and Raymond Tonsing, et cetera, just like do the whole thing. We'll see. We'll see about that. Um, but I do think uh, it, there's something appealing to me about it. But but the other thing, and this is the thing I sort of clarify for all founders is that like, I'm running a company, right? And so if you have a lead investor versus a, it's very different, right? Relationship yeah. uh, from having like a me, like 100K, you know, sort of like sitting next to them, uh, help, happy to help in the ways that I can, but like, it's a very different relationship. And so I want to also make sure that if I do end up writing 500K million dollar checks at some point down the road, that I'm, I'm, I'm also adding value sort of at a, at a sort of like proportional, proportional rate, which frankly today I wouldn't be able to, to do. Yeah, yeah. Steve, I mean, you've done Series A stuff before. You think that's a part of the model at some point? It's it's hard to see, honestly. But again, I I, th- I think there will be examples of it, but I don't think it becomes the standard. So I, I do think there will be outliers. I think that certain kinds of companies will be able to do it, but I think on the whole, I think traditional Series A, you need to go and raise five to ten million dollars 
I think you 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 go to one of the the, the traditional institutions and get a board to you know get a board member and play that. I you know if if I had to guess, it will probably be less than you know five percent of the the cases. I to me, I I see this really holding firm at the seed pre seed and seed, and then I think there will be exceptional cases like the front like the the fronts and the and the notions and some of the others. And, and listen, like you can make an argument that like both both could be good for the company. It just depends what you're trying to optimize for. I mean, go, having an institutional backer at the Series A stage in, in some ways is also a bit of insurance because of the, a reserve strategy. And so, you know, you can always get a second check if you need additional runway because they have already invested so much. You know, if you have a, you know, a syndicate with a bunch of cats and dogs, you, you, they're just not, might not be that incentive alignment. So I do think there's trade-offs to, to going with, you know, a collective as opposed to an institution beyond a certain stage. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, last question for you guys. This is a very traditional VC question, but um, I'm just curious how you guys think about slightly longer term for your, for each of your models. And, you know, if you could imagine, yeah, if you could imagine doing this version of it for like a really long time, or if you kind of view this as more of a stepping stone to something, to something else. And I may, I know that's probably hard to answer. Maybe you guys don't know yet, but I'm just curious what the, maybe the next three, five, 10 years looks like for you guys. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in. I mean, I'll be the first to admit, and and I think those that know me, I'm, I'm, I, I wear I wear my heart on my sleeve, and I'm extremely open about about things. Um, I don't know, you know, I to me, I see this as an experiment. You know, in in twelve months from now, I could very well say, hey, you know what, this was a fun experiment. I deployed the company. I'm going to work with the portfolio and continue to support them, but I'm not going to raise another fund. Um, I I I I don't want to say that. That's definitely the case, but it could be. And so I very much view this as an experiment. And I think in six months from now, as I, as I get ready for the, the next capital call, I'll, I'll take a step back and I'll think long and hard about it. Now, that said, like if I, if I were a betting man, I would say that I would probably, the, the next fund will be a rolling and it will give me a little bit more flexibility than locking in. I think part of the reason why being a pure institutional fund where I go and raise from institutions 10, 20, 30, 40, whatever, is, is that 10 to 15 year commitment. And if I, I would need to have a certain level of conviction that this was absolutely what I wanted to do long term before I went and had those kinds of conversations. And right now I just don't have that answer. And so I felt like this, you know, for now, this experiment, I'm enjoying it. I'm learning a lot. I'm getting into some great companies. I'm helping founders. I'm doing everything that I want to do. And and you know, when this experiment is up in 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 a few years, I'll I'll be able to think about what the next experiment I want to run is. Yeah, there's when I'm when I moved to Utah, there was a line that stuck with me from Mormon scripture, which is line upon lines, precept upon precept, something like that. And I just love the they have this idea of sort of like procedural revelation, basically, where they're kind of constantly almost like version control for their, for their religion. And I just think it's a really compelling idea 
And I use it all the time in my life. And, and what I love about rolling funds, it just fits into that philosophy for me where I can kind of just sort of like take a step, you know, even though it's sort of, I don't know what the future looks like. I can kind of like move forward and then I can reevaluate and I can move mm. forward again. And I can reevaluate. Like I started the fund trying to raise a hundred thousand dollars a quarter two months ago. And now it's, you know, $1.6 million a quarter, $1.7 million a quarter. So there's so much more demand than I thought, which probably might indicate that there's actually even more demand than I, than I think currently. And so, you know, I'm sort of just like the way that I think about it very short term is, you know, the quarter is almost over. I did 14 investments deployed $1.55 million. I'll send LPs an update with my investments redacted with anything the founders don't want to reveal and say, Hey, look, it's a rolling fund. Next quarter is October one. You can increase your commitment. If you feel comfortable doing that, obviously no pressure at all. You can forward this email to another rich person that you know, and they can join the fund uh, because I'm always looking for more capital to, to, to deploy to founders. And then I just want to wait and see. You know, when I talked to the Angelist team, they said, "Look, we had a fund start quarter one, and then quarter two, only this the same LP base, no new LPs, grew by twenty percent. Next quarter grew by thirty percent. Next quarter grew by twenty percent, doubled in three quarters." Hmm. So I think part, I think like kind of, we were talking about before people are getting their toes wet right now. It's a new structure. I'm a new investor. I'm taking it incredibly seriously. I think maybe more seriously than than a lot of people might think I'm taking it. And I want to show people that I'm really good at this. I wouldn't do it otherwise. And and I'm hopeful that I can send that thing out. And then next quarter, I start at two point something, right. And see where it goes from there. Uh, I think strategically, I'm really interested in staying pre-seed and seed. And so what I'd rather do is figure out how can I deploy more checks at this size, stay collaborative with other folks. I don't want to start competing with people for winning because frankly, I don't have the time. So what I'm really trying to figure out, the big question I'm trying to, I'm sort of playing with in my mind is like, is it, can this be horizontally scaled? Like, is there kind of like an, almost like an AWS approach to this, right? Where you can figure out, oh, there's like a, I don't know if it's with some software or with a different strategy or with some sort of like scout program, or I'm sort of just playing with the idea of like, can I do double the 100k checks a year instead of you know the same checks but 250k because i'm bottlenecked on my time i think most firms say it just takes a per- certain time per deal especially if you're taking board seats etc so we need to kind of double down that sort of influences the reserve strategy etc um, but i think in this new world where i'm like sort of trying to scale myself as much as possible i think there's like an interesting opportunity for kind of figuring out how can i write is it possible for me to write a thousand hundred k checks a year i don't know uh, the answer today would be no. I would yeah. definitely not. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but but maybe uh, a year from now, two years from now, there there yeah. might be you know interesting ways to potentially do something like this. And so that's kind of that's what's on my mind, at least as I kind of like explore what's next. Um, the nice thing is the SEC has a limit on LPs, so I can't just go on Twitter and say I'm collecting. I have thousands of LPs because then my fund would be forty, fifty million dollars tomorrow. Yeah, I, I would basically have to find a new CEO. Like my whole life would change. So I'm almost glad for those limits because it kind of sort of forces me to grow at a more sort of like consistent rate, you know, $5 million fund versus $7 million fund. You don't really have to change everything. Right. But five to 20, you might have to start thinking about, okay, this is a, this is a new kind of fund, a new, you know, new check size or new approach, new stage, et cetera. So that's kind of how I think about it. Which is a big reason why, I, you know, in terms of strategy and approach, why I kept the first fund at, at five was um, to be able to be collaborative um, because I found that if I, if I were to raise 10, 20, you know, you start to get to a zone where 
you know, people don't really view you as friendly. Yeah, totally. Um, thank you guys so much. Uh, this was inspiring. I think what you guys are doing is really innovative and interesting and have no doubt that uh, every founder raising capital is going to want to talk to you guys and vice versa. Now every LP that wants to invest capital can also chat with you guys. So um, you guys are very easily findable on Twitter. So if folks have, have interest in connecting, they can do that. And um, this was awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Nick. This podcast was created by Notation. Notation is a first check venture capital firm in New York. We work with technical founding teams from day zero. Notation companies are always hiring. Check out jobs.notation.vc. You can also find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. Thanks to Cooley for sponsoring this episode. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high growth industries. It is the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. At Notation, we love working with Cooley and recommend them to all the companies we work with. Learn more about the firm at Cooley.com and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors, CooleyGo.com. We'd also like to thank Silicon Valley Bank. SVB is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors. Their experts help innovators, enterprises, and investors move their bold ideas forward. Tap into the experience and connections of the SVB team for advice on strategic, operational, and tactical issues and limited partner insights. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC. If you like this episode, please share and remember to tag it with hashtag OpenLP.